Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, on today's episode of In Unison, we're chatting with Craig Hella Johnson of Conspirare. I've often heard folks use the term grand boss to refer to their boss's boss, and well, Craig is kind of my grand mentor, my teacher's teacher, as it were, because I studied with Josh Haberman, and Josh studied with Craig. It was really cool to see the way that Craig's outlook and aesthetic has passed through Josh and on to me. Craig's ensemble, Conspirare, really needs no introduction, but let's go ahead and start off by getting a taste of their sound. Here's a piece of crossover choral music from their Grammy-nominated live album, A Company of Voices. Here's an arrangement of Carly Simon's Let the River Run. Joining us today on In Unison is Craig Hella Johnson, founding artistic director of Conspirare, a Grammy-winning choir based in Austin, Texas, that is comprised of distinctive solo artists from around the country who are also committed to the highest level of ensemble performance. We're going to focus our conversation today around Conspirare and their operations, but how about we start off with a little background info on Craig. 
Craig is renowned as one of today's most influential voices in choral conducting, bringing unparalleled depth of knowledge, artistic sensitivity, and rich imagination to his programs. As artistic director of Conspirare, Craig assembles some of the finest singers in the country to form a world-class, award-winning ensemble committed to creating dynamic choral art. Craig is also music director of the Cincinnati Vocal Arts Ensemble and conductor emeritus of the Victoria Bach Festival. He was Chanticleer's artistic director from 1998 to 1999, has served as guest conductor with the Austin Symphony, San Antonio Symphony, and many others in Texas, the U.S., and abroad, and as the director of choral activities at the University of Texas at Austin from 1990 to 2001, he led the graduate program in choral conducting. Craig remains an active educator, teaching nationally and internationally with professionals and students at conferences and universities. He is also a frequent speaker at regional and national conferences of the American Choral Directors Association, and joined the faculty at Texas State as Artist-in-Residence in the fall of 2016, where he continues to teach as Professor of Practice. A Minnesota native, Craig studied at St. Olaf College, the Juilliard School, and the University of Illinois. He earned his doctorate at Yale and has been a Texas resident since 1990. Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to chat with you. Thank you. So fun to be with you. Craig, it is truly an honor for us today to get to know you and to chat with you a little bit more. And we like to get to know you a little bit personally as well with an icebreaker. So we've picked one for you that we'd love to ask. What's a piece of art that gives you goosebumps? <laughs> well, I think what comes to mind just right off, there are a number of, you know, we could have a long conversation here, but uh, icebreakers aren't intended for that. So, you know, what comes jumping to my mind is uh, Edvard Munch, The Scream. Uh, I, I think the first time I saw that, it, it was in the museum in Oslo. And there are several sort of versions of it that Monk created, but the, you know, the most important one that's held in that wonderful little museum, it's in a house in Oslo. There's um, one, I also have lots of Scandinavian, especially Norwegian ancestors, my grandparents all. And um, so there's a nice connection there, but you know, I, when the first time I saw that it, took my breath away just i'd seen posters of it you know and but man that I, talk about goosebumps i felt like i'd never seen art before it just woke me up in the most alive way and that was i was probably just out of college at the time my first trip back to the motherland and um man it was awesome and i still get moved when i see it today just something about that expression that came so alive for me that's wonderful. And it, that feels like a piece that we can all sort of relate to at the moment. I mean, given sort of world current events and, and what's going on, it's something that unfortunately resonates throughout the th throughout millennia, I guess. That, that same expression, right. capturing monks, capturing that expression is wonderful. Mm -hmm. You are the artistic and founding artistic director of Conspirare. Can you tell our folks a little bit about Conspirare's history? Maybe tell us a bit about its founding and maybe where the name came from and what it means. Yeah, uh, we started out as a music festival back in kind of 92-ish, 93-ish. Feels like, a, you know, a long, long time ago. But uh, I was new in town and I had just come from Germany where I lived. I'd been at the International Bach Academy working with Helmut Rilling there. And I just loved the way that all these choral musicians, uh, these singers came from all over Europe on the trains and came together for these four or five day periods 
to uh, rehearse a rep and then present it. And it was just like one of the finest assemblages of, of singers that I'd experienced. And so I really was excited to try and replicate that somehow, you know, big problem with, you know, with that idea coming to the United States is that, you know, it's a much bigger landmass here than, you know, when you're in Germany, you can bring people in from Switzerland and France and even Spain a little bit easier. And those, the train system is so fantastic. So anyway, we, this was my vision. And I sort of just, you know, when I thought about the landmass problem and I'd be la 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 la, no, what are we going to do to make this happen? And it had to be on airplanes, of course. So, but we started out just a couple of first years doing a festival, bringing this kind of a group together. And then uh, in the third year, it became really clear that there was so much excitement about the festival that this thing had sort of a natural overflow into just becoming a, uh, every year kind of having a series type, more, more sort of organization. And that's when we, you know, shifted to what I think is more now the Conspirare uh, model. We started out with a December concert and then a spring concert. And then before you know it, we're just up and running kind of September through June. Um, so we started that way. There was something really important about the festival atmosphere and culture that really informed who we became though. You know, I think that first festival, we had five nights of activities and um, I remember we kicked it off with a B minor mass and there was a second performance of second concert of all new music. Um, there was a memorial service. We did a midnight Mahler concert and everyone thought it was nuts. No one will come at 11 at night. And, you know, the parking lot was full in the hall. It was just so exciting to come drive in at 1015 right after we just finished the B minor and getting ready to do these songs of Mahler at you know, and we, we ran to 1230 AM. It was just wonderful. So there's something about that flexibility, adaptability, lots of styles present in the same kind of uh, place. So, uh, yeah, that's how we started. The name is, is means a lot to me because names are hard as, as, as we all know, um, and they live with you a long time. Uh, but I was reading a book by Paul Manette. Um, and I always love saying his name because not not all of us remember him, especially for our gay sisters and brothers. Uh, he, he's one of our heroes. Uh, but he had written a book that many people knew called Becoming a Man, which won the National Book Award. It's a really important book. But one book that he wrote before that was called Borrowed Time, and really powerful book. It uh, Talk about a, a work of art that made me feel alive. That was just incredible. When I read that book, I was doing my I think that was I was reading it when I was doing my doctorate at, at Yale, and and uh, just blew me away. Uh, Paul Manette writes about Roger, he, the relationship with his partner Roger, and uh, Roger was dying of AIDS at that time, and it was really before there was any treatment. It was in the mid '80s, and this incredible uh, storytelling. He's a beautiful writer, but you know, tragic and beautiful. Um, the loss of this great love of his life. So I was very moved just by that to begin with. But then he wrote about how he and Roger just didn't like any of the typical names like partner or lover or husband or any of those. They just didn't like them. And so they decided to call themselves conspirators um, because they love that notion of breathing together. 
And I was very moved by that just in the context of their story. And it stayed with me a long time. And and I remember pitching it and all of a sudden I thought that could be a beautiful name. Just this idea of how we, we all, when we sing together, paint on a canvas of breath. It's so often, you know, especially we can say in these times, um, clearly it's difficult for us to know how to find common ground um, in this human family. But, you know, no one will ever deny the commonality of breath. And so I love that. So that's where the name came from. Um, yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's really interesting because it's been a really meaningful name for us over the years. When we went to France, we were in Normandy. I remember once I was going to mention too, just that it was, uh, we've, we've become sensitive to, you know, that word conspirator. I don't share the story always in all contexts because that word conspirator is not a comfortable word for a lot of folks, especially those who, as they shared with us so personally, lived through World War II in that region. Um, but the name itself, to share breath, to, to breathe with, you know, um, is really what, what we're all about. <clears throat> I love that st that statement, painting on a canvas of breath. I absolutely wrote that down just now. Mm. That was fantastic. I think that's going to be the title of this episode. Mm. Nice. You talk about how you are all sort of within this uh, this unison or this notion, how we all share a breath. But you also mentioned that Kunzferari is noted for having a distinct choral voice, that these are individual voices that are coming together. Maybe you could tell us a little bit how you might describe Conspirare's voice as an ensemble. That's a fun question. Um, yeah, well, what's really fun about it, too, is that it really does have a voice. You know, it's sort of like you, as, a, as, a, as an early conductor, music director, um, you know, sharing with each of you who have those gifts and do that kind of work and many others who may be listening. But, you know, you, you, there's so much that you're shaping and kind of setting a foundation for. And there's so much that, where, I mean, it's, your influence is felt just because you're the only one you know, doing anything. Initially, you're the only one who cares. So, so it's, you know, you form everything. You form the first steering committee and you form the first group. And, um, but, you know, it was, it really, it was about eight years in, you know, and there were many, many musical, wonderful musical experiences those first eight years. But I remember the moment and the concert when I thought, oh my gosh, this ensemble has just entered the room. I mean, it became itself. You know, we might say a Stuttgart Chamber Orchestra or, you know, Berlin Philharmonic, or we know they have their own sort of essence, their own traits, as you're asking about so thoughtfully. And eight years in, we were doing uh, the Argento uh, Walden with uh, three cellos and yeah, and all of a sudden it came through in such a distinctive way and it's kind of stayed consistent. And there's a way in which it keeps growing and evolving um, in ways that that I notice, uh, but there's some inherent traits. So I would say there is a, a willingness to be, to express that comes from a very deep place in the singers when they come together. Um, there is an openness and kind of a, a, a transparency that, singers who have been here a while kind of just practice as has been a part of the culture. And it, it I think it feels like a very safe environment because uh, we really work at that sort of emotionally safe. I mean, yeah. Anyway, I, I love this idea of, of a voice that an ensemble has. I think it's important to, you know, it, it feels really relevant in the sense of 
I think because we now, this is this was not the case um, when we started Kunzpur. I mean, we, we're now seeing the fulfillment of sort of part of, I know my own dream was that we could, uh, I'm going to use this word very cautiously, but kind of professionalize the field. What I really mean is create more professional opportunities for singers around the country. And because uh, there was so much great music making going on at a very, very high level. But I, we, I really wanted with the work that we did to, to be, of course, the work we're doing, but also to be something that could be planting seeds so that um, there we would see more of this around the country. And, uh, and then one interesting thing that we have to sort of observe right now too it's very exciting there are many many groups around the country and sing some singers can do full-time work going from city to city um which i think is fantastic um and as we do that you know i always i tell other conductors let's be sure we keep these groups really distinctive in the sense of you know put your artistic stamp on things let your own um uh individual um, offering as a, as a conductor, for example, but then also the singers that that particular chemistry of people together at that time make a unique statement so that, you know, um, we're not just repeating performances in places around the country. But I think for Kunzbari, uh there's a way in which it's uh, their expression is, is really evidenced by um, a real transparency, a real vulnerability, a, uh, openness, to sort of sing from a deep place. I will say too that even having to do with dynamics sometimes, I, I feel like contemporary singers are willing to go way to the end of a dynamic spectrum, you know, on the pianissimo end, if if it serves the musical character for or the, what's needing to be expressed. I've been amazed at that, um, you know, and. All these singers have extraordinary voices that have been developed and established and as an instrument. And it's a lot to do to sometimes, you know, suggest that those singers do, as we say, kind of sing on the vapors. Um, and yet there's a willingness there. There's a willingness to put themselves and just kind of lay themselves out. And what results is, um, I think, a real <clears throat> freedom in the music making and, uh, I do hope, you know, whether or not, you know, we always achieve this, uh, others have to observe and, and evaluate, but but we always hope that we can address music differently, depending on what the needs and requirements and what the composer is intending, uh, so that it's not a contemporary sound dropped onto different things. That's, that's not so interesting to me. So always kind of listening for that. What is it that we're trying to express on this composer's behalf? Um, yeah, so I think there is a flexibility in Gunsbury's approach too. Um, yeah, but it's there's there is a real beautiful openness and I think a commitment to sort of finding what's at the core of what's wanting to be expressed. This is a bit of a loaded question, but what would you say a typical performance would be like if I showed up to see any Gunsbury performance? What what can I expect? Well, I think uh, a really high level of singing, you know, just on both the technical level, but more importantly, just on that expressive level. I think that that's something I, I just always come to trust, come rain or come shine, they deliver. Um, I think there there is a sense of welcome that I sense in those performances. I, there There's something we've worked at, I think, over the years together with a beautiful team. I mean, we try and think of that, everything we do is as a we, 
And I always want to encourage that um, the greatest joy is when we celebrate those things together, but that the culture, you know, wants this to be a culture that welcomes, you know, and welcomes everyone in. And I, of course, mean it in all the ways we might expect, whether it's about gender or race or uh, orientation or uh, ability, disability, whatever the case might be across the, the economics spectrum, but also just for folks who have any connection with choral music or not. You know, I really would like for uh, someone who's not a choral person typically to come in and have some kind of entry point that they don't feel totally alienated. You know, not like that person coming to a church, to a liturgical church for the first time and feeling lost because they don't know what page, you know, how come everybody seems to know what they're doing. You know, we're always trying to be mindful of how do you welcome that first time listener? Um, how do you support their experience? Um, yeah, and beyond that, I think, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of love in the room always. You know, it's just kind of the way it rolls. I think there's uh, joy in the music making. Um, I think sometimes if you said this is this is not answering your question at all, but if you were to come to four or five concerts, I think a person could be surprised at sort of the range of types of music that we're singing and that we're willing to sing. So I think that's something that's very interesting. I like to think of us as a book club kind of, you know, and you just reading all kinds of books, some you love, some you don't, but everybody's free to have their experience. So I also think, sorry, I'll put a nickel in this question in me. And um, I love our audiences and I say this to them quite frequently, but I feel like we have some of the best audiences anywhere because they, they sort of just do this zoom in where you, you feel them sit and it's, I don't mean serious in the kind of, uh, you know, frowning bishop kind of way, but kind of serious <laughs> in the dedicated, they, they just want to listen and, you know, give me an experience, you know, I'm ready. And sometimes the level of quiet, it's like, come on, you guys, just give us a little human space here too, but they just zoom in, give it to us. And they, you know, a lot of them have kind of over the years, uh, at the end of concerts kind of been in a practice of sometimes just wanting silence and we respect that, you know, but it's, we never try and man manipulate it or create it, but there's often silence at the ends of things just because our listeners are kind of, they love to settle in and really take in the experience. So those are a few things when I think of. Let's take a moment and listen to a piece that might have inspired Conspirare's audience to sit and reflect after the performance. The composition How Little You Are by Nico Muley sets texts contrasting the perspectives of Sarah Winamuka, the first Native American to publish an English language narrative, with the pioneer women who lived alongside her. Here is movement four of that work, Springtime, which is featured on Conspirare's most recent Grammy-nominated album, The Singing Guitar.
They, uh, I just had a conversation this morning on a walk with my friend Eileen, who I mentioned that we were having this conversation today, and I said, oh my god, we're talking with Craig L. Johnson, da, da, da. and she said, oh, you know, choral music, she's, you know, she said, it's just, it's just not for me. She's like, I just, you know, I don't want to go, go to a church or something like that. And your, your point about accessibility is such a strong one, because I don't think most folks realize that this is music of the people, for the people. It is, there's a reason that we, you know, we talk about the Greek chorus being representative of folks, and um, it's wonderful to hear that that Contemporary's concerts and are, are are as absolutely accessible as they can be and that your audiences definitely get it and feel that they are welcomed well i was just going to say I, I, and let's let's really put a a highlight over that just to say you know our, our work with this is so not done and i i think it's a real thing that we really have to meet and we are challenged sometimes because of you know some of our our best acoustical environments are in churches uh, in where we are and um but that's one of several obstacles that we still talk about regularly like it's the first time we've ever talked about it because i yeah it's um it's, that work is never done i guess i just want to say for all of us and we should never assume it's in a church it's not a problem it's all fine we'll just explain it to them once it's like no people have real things they need to kind of overcome some people in order to have a good listening experience. And some people just, we know, we know people who say, I just can't come. I can't enter that space. Well, interestingly, also during the pandemic, we were presented with the opportunity to actually present these works, not necessarily within those spaces. We may have been performing within those spaces, but they're getting beamed into folks' homes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you survived during this period, and perhaps thrived even during this period of time during presentations and how um, you were sort of, I, I believe, at the forefront of presenting this music in a way that was far more accessible to anyone you could. What are some things that you did during the last couple of years? Well, it's interesting, Giacomo, because I, I, that was one of the things I loved about this horrible last two years. But the venue thing could really get solved, you know, I mean, just for a short time. And well, for example, uh, one of the greatest uh, joys uh, I had during that time was working on this project we called Unity. And uh, it's still available for people to see online. It's a one hour concert. Um, but I worked with very closely with um, an, a filmmaker in South Africa, and he had an animator and an animation team. Um, so I got to tell him, you know, about a venue, just, you know, one example of a venue that I wanted to create um, which was so amazing. And so I just kind of bullet list, I said, these are the things. And so I, I'd like it to, to feel like it's very intimate, this venue that we're in. And yet I would like to feel that it's open to the world. So it's porous. And I, so I, I, it was a bullet list that had about 25 elements. And uh, wonderfully, um, they created this really awesome space that started out at first like a coliseum but then it got much smaller and it's out and people have asked many times where is that it's such a cool venue and i'm like yeah it doesn't exist and um but then we you know we had every all of our singers all over in front of their green screens um at home with their iphones or uh oh it was such a matter to do all that it was just amazing but yeah we really committed to we wanted to continue to employ and engage our artists because, you know, we didn't want them to lose the income. We wanted them to have meaningful work. And of course, maybe at the top of that list is we just wanted to provide meaningful um, 
experiences during this time, certainly for our artists, for our whole community, but for our listeners, a way to stay connected. Yeah, so we did a good bit of that. The Unity was the largest project, but we also did a, a Christmas concert fully online. We did a handful. Uh, Deke Sharon wrote some cool things for us. We did a couple of, they were kind of singles. Um, and we did a, a new work by Kyle Smith for four soloists and piano and yeah, I, I think it gave, I did a concert myself, a little in-home. The very first thing I did was this little 40-minute me singing from my home piano just to connect. And it gave us that great gift of this is not going to be perfect, so let's not even, let's really get rid of those notions of our, our kind of unhealthy perfectionism or uh, kind of dance with that. Uh, and I hope that's gone for good, you know. Yeah, I mean, the best art is a little bit messy, right? When your heart yeah. and soul is really into it, it is okay. You know, I think I, I think I speak for many, many audience members when we say, like, I would much rather hear something that's, a, you know, got a little errors in there and a lot of heart than something that is clinical and perfect and soulless. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's been a really, it was such a hard time, of course, and not that it's completely over, but it's a lot feeling like we're over a little bit. And and it was so hard. I think our singers also were were feeling alone in those. We we did our best to provide support and to provide instruction, of course. But it just you know this is a, a aspect of their lives that they've come to um, know is so important. This making music with others and to suddenly just be completely in solitude, you know, on your own. And um, so it was really really tender to experience that with them um and to hear their stories but it felt really uh, tremendous to be able to still create art and to not be shut down and to feel people's generosity too we we did all of those events without a paywall so we just said we want you to come and enjoy it um and what we found is that people gave uh donations equal or greater than the amount of what tickets would have been so so conspirai obviously is a you know very decorated organization has having won or been nominated for several grammy awards in recent years um, as well as this year for um, the singing guitar um, but setting aside awards and accolades what are you personally most proud of when it comes to conspirare gosh that's such a big question i i it's 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 beautiful to contemplate um it certainly is way beyond awards and acknowledgements. Those are very lovely uh, gifts that sometimes come, sometimes don't for all of us, you know, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think it's the love at the center of people's generous music making over the years. Uh, I will say just from the musical perspective, um, I feel so proud and grateful of kind of all the mountains that these singers have climbed in terms of repertoire um, and really taken it and handled it and um, met it and uh, realized it very fully. I'm so proud of them for their extraordinary artistry, athleticism, intellect, um, and you know, for sharing their gifts in that way, but then for doing it in a way that feels like it's always of service. It's always like giving it over to others. Um, so I think 
something I feel super proud of too. I, it's yeah, proud is an interesting word, but I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, um, grateful for is just the culture that's been developed, um, and you know we are all so dedicated to a really kind of intense level of music making, and it's you know we kind of live for it, breathe for it. It feels like we die for it, but even so, beyond that. There is a way in which the human relationships here that are established and the way we are in the world, how, how we use these gifts in service to, as our vision statement says, the world's awakening, that has been, um, that's, that I sense is for all of us the most important. You, you talk about sort of that, that openness and the love being at the center of what makes Kunspirati, which is beautiful. I imagine that extends to when you work with collaborators, potentially. Do, do you work with other arts organizations or other individual musicians? Like, what's an example of a time when you've been able to share that with another group and perhaps been met with that same love? Yeah. Oh, we do it a lot. You know, and I would say very recently uh, for our December Christmas concerts, um, we were really, we always have a guest artist. And this year, um, and, you know, sometimes it's a classical artist, but many times it's a folk or rock or blues or pop artist, something jazz, you know, um, something that can just kind of refresh our our work and kind of bring in their ideas that are maybe off the, the alignment of what we've been doing more typically. So, but this year, long story short, because <laughs> we, we did ask Dolly. If she would come, <laughs> we, just, we think, you know, she's, she's so amazing. So we, we got within like maybe three degrees of separation. I think it, she has like 15 levels of management, I think. And I think we got down to maybe level two or level three. It seemed like, um, and who was really in there trying for like a, a few days and, and it was just like, no, there's just no way. And, um, but anyway, uh, that was something we almost do every year. So, uh, <laughs> But this year, I just kind of had this wacky notion of of maybe we could bring a group. And I'd been having the very great fortune of uh, kind of messaging back and forth over the last few years with Isaac Cates, who's with Ordained. And um, yeah, he reached out to me, thanked me for a couple of things at one point. It was such a warm email. I wrote him back. And then we just became kind of buddies in the internet way and, and um, just talking back and forth. And, and I, I got to know his work online and really appreciated him. So just kind of uh, as a wild hair, we thought maybe ordained could come and we could just fly them here <laughs> as the, you know, the accountant and the business person that comes right, rolling their eyes like, oh, Lordy. And um, so anyway, they did it. It was amazing. Um, oh, it was so beautiful. So Ordained is uh, primarily uh, a gospel choir made up of singers who are all black. And Conspirari is primarily a classical choir. And we have a pretty diverse rep uh, representation, but, you know, I would say a majority Caucasian. And, um, and that's changing actually a little bit, you know, over time, wonderfully so. Um, but yeah, so... But the whole classical gospel thing just was amazing to come together. And I think they came jumping to mind, especially when you said, and that love comes back. Um, I made sure we had time in rehearsals where we were just talking to each other. Like, how is this for us? How's it going? And 
a lot uh, several of the singers express that they um they mostly learn things by rote and kind of learning that way there were others in the choir uh, in ordained who are, are classically trained also so it wasn't all of them and then so i mean both parties came in with that typical human sense of maybe in some way i'm not enough you know maybe the conspiracy singers were feeling like wow to stand next to these singers who improvise so fluidly and they just they sing emotively from such a deep place just incredible and like it's never not fully present is what you feel like so there was that not enough sense from their side as one example and then some on the others are saying oh conspire you know and from ordain you're so technically strong and you have all this training and uh all the kind of things that come with the classical realm and we just got to kind of get into this place where we were really feeling you know to borrow and adapt from Lynn Manuel you know like music is music is music is music you know and and to realize like for me too for in that experience to realize the things that reside in us that still don't sink deeply into that it's one thing to say it and but for me you know i grew up playing by ear uh i that was my first way in and i was kind of scolded for that early on sort of like that was that was bad that was music of the you know of jazz or that was music of you know as if that's bad and that was the music of the 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 beer hall kind of a thing was sort of the it was a very strange thing and now of course i mean i feel like it's my greatest good fortune that my ear was able to hear something and play it on site and but for years i, I would kind of keep that a secret and be very ashamed of it and so thinking that that was all kind of healed now you know lots later in life realizing oh my gosh just to be able I, we had two keyboards back and forth isaac had one and i had one and that's kind of how we did the concert too just both sitting at keyboards and just to be back and forth with that sense that music of all stripes had its place that needed to be expressed needed to be voiced it was the most amazing living metaphor and so it's just one example but yeah we love that since you since you mentioned it specifically maybe there's a pearl of wisdom you can share uh with choirs who uh typically tackle the uh a staple of choral music which is the holiday concert and uh, a question for you obviously programming a holiday concert can be fraught with lots of complexity right you want to make sure yeah. that you're thinking about appropriate representation to balancing audience requests for the greatest holiday hits. So when you were preparing that program, and in general, when you think about programming at that time of year, what dimensions do you consider when programming something you might call a holiday concert set? Yes. Um, before I do, probably, I probably shouldn't go here even, but since I'm talking to two San Francisco guys, I think I have to. But, you know... <laughs> You know, my time with Shanda Clear, which was so wonderful and fun. I loved it. And, uh, but it, you know, it was just there a short time. But, you know, I came in and I said, so everyone who's listening to will kind of understand the gasp by the end. But when it finally got to the public, that, uh, but I said to the singers, aren't, aren't you all a little bit tired of singing Ave Maria by Franz Bebel? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, 
and you know there was this just this, amen yeah this flood and i love it i mean i, I love the piece but this flood of response from from the guys like oh yes if you really possibly we could take because how many concerts at christmas does shannon clear do? i don't know but at the time it felt like i don't know 20 25 they were just touring everywhere and it was night after night and if they sang at a luncheon somewhere it was ave maria so they were very relieved we were all just, just strutting right along i must have gotten 150 or 200 letters you know from people complaining like you know who is this it's guy? tradition craig how dare you yes exactly yeah. if someone would have just explained it, it's like the beautiful savior of you know for that for me from saint olaf choir tradition you know you couldn't ever rip that off anyway it was great and and they, they were all fundamentally fine i think it was a good first step <laughs> but yeah oh gosh um holiday concerts you know what's really true about December and that singing time is that people more than any other time of year that is a time when someone will go to a choral concert who wouldn't any other time of the year so we do have this expanded audience which I think we would be fools not to engage in some way and for me I don't know there's no pearl certainly of wisdom but I, I would just say what became important to me is that in some authentic way and I'll speak as the conductor and the base word of that in some form is conduit. But in, in my job, in some authentic way, could I be an authentic conduit for what we at least profess to be the sort of theme of this season, which is you know how we love each other and that love is born at this time. And that, you know, we can take many other detailed nuances, but let's just start there. And of course, what so many people feel is just the opposite with just all the advertising that we're bombarded with and all of the awareness that we fall so far from the mark um, with this aspirational hope to really truly try and connect with one another and see each other with more love and respect. So I think, you know, that would be my, my core theme or suggestion to anyone in the, in the planning mode is that use everything you have at your fingertips, all of your resources and all of your imagination to let these concerts become vital and alive with that thread running through it. You know, try new things. Um, try letting, actually, I like to say love with a capital L, the breath of love, let that be your inspiration, sort of the your guiding um, muse through through this planning uh, because I, I find typically that holiday concerts are some of the most lifeless things that I experience, you know, because um, everyone feels the obligation to do it. Um, and yet, I guess we'll just rehash what we've done. And there's a certain recipe for that. So I think that's really unfortunate because, um, yeah. It kind of plays into that thing. Someone was just quoting Stravinsky the other day, and I, 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 I had forgotten it. That people, uh, he says it more eloquently, but people are much more sort of prone to want to recognize than to cognize. And you know, I mean, yes, we love the familiar. Yes, we want to hear that thing again and again. So, is there a way we can blend a sense of comfort, safety, home, familiar, with also the fact that that home can't be static and the doors can't be closed to that home you know so sometimes maybe that might feel difficult you know um or challenging i mean i, I it felt even risky to do what we did with ordained even in 2022 or 21 at the time you know just can we just be this bold 
I kept saying to the people who understood my choral reference, you guys, this is the Peaceable Kingdom. I mean, this is that green cover of that old Peaceable Kingdom score. A lot of us choral nerds know of Randall Thompson, where all those animals are living so happily and peacefully together. You know, can we please just start living our way into that? And so that's, that'd be my, my holiday thought. <laughs> While we're on the subject of holiday concerts, let's hear an example of Craig keeping things fresh with Conspirare's collaboration with the Gospel Choir Ordained. Now, you might think that this isn't exactly a holiday song, but true to form, Craig programmed pieces that were authentically of the moment. From the Conspirare Christmas 2021 concert, arranged by Isaac Cates and performed by Ordained and Conspirare, here is Hold On.
I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about the extra musical aspect of choral music making. You know, <clears throat> the International Orange Chorale is a community chorus. We're a bunch of singers who are not mostly not professional singers, so quite different from the conspirare model, where we're bringing you're bringing professional singers in from around the country. And so, our process of learning repertoire over the course of a season. Um, takes a little bit more time. We don't expect our singers to arrive knowing the music through and through. So we kind of dis have this uh, journey of discovery together as an ensemble. And during that process, we're, we talk a lot about the, the non-musical parts of the music, you know, what the text means to each of us, how it resonates with us, how we're coming together. You know, there's a lot of extra musical parts of choral music making. And I'm wondering if you could give us an idea of what that's like in a professional organization like Conspirare, where I, I assume the singers are expected to arrive for their set, um, knowing the music already and that you kind of get right into it and you start to make this music at a very high level right away. How do you, as the director, foster that same exploration, that same discovery for your singers, for your community in this professional setting? That's a really interesting question. And just to start by saying, uh, I love hearing a well, you speak about that process is beautiful, isn't it? It's a beautiful aspect of this. And that week after week, a group of people come together. I love that. And sometimes I, I really miss that too, especially the regular consistency of it. Um, I think interestingly, it's, it's very easy in sort of a professional music culture um, to sidestep that very thing you're asking about. And and what a tragedy, you know, but what happens, I think the more sort of professional it becomes, you know, the more that gets invited in there, all that sense of high expectation, um, you know, we have to be performing at the very top of our game. Um, even the fear of, I mean, will I get hired back or will I make an impression on a colleague or, you know, so what tends to happen is that uh, singers may have that impulse to play it safe, to pull back in, you know, try and just deliver the clean, here's the clean stuff I have for you. 
And um, yeah, so in order to, I mean, that's very um, stifling to the kind of thing you're talking about, conversations and to process. And it's also kind of something that strangely that culture can can say that we sort of take out an emotional component in a way, you know, um, uh, a layer because we're professionals, don't you know? I mean, it's like really an unfortunate kind of strange thing that can happen. I don't know. In terms of what what I try and do, I think I have to live it myself because I can see this group and it happens, you know, every time a new group assembles, I'm like, shit, this group is filled with so much talent and intelligence and, and experience and degrees. It's like, ugh. you know, if we go to the small place, which comes from fear, which is like, I could also think I'm not enough for this. I could, you know, it's easy. I know I can play it safe too. So I think the very first thing I have to do is to sort of live and model my priorities. You know, I know why I went into music and I, I don't want to forget why I did. Uh, I went in because I love music, but I also went in because I really believe this is an incredible way to to relate to other human beings. This is an incredible way to be able to hold some of the deepest emotions, but also some of the themes of the world's most challenging, our own personal existential questions even just, I mean, it can all be held in our musical language in our and in our silence together. So yeah, I, I know that I can't go in there and not have that courage. And I, I really mean courage because even last rep, I thought there was a moment I thought, yes, I have to step into this. Um, and, and then I think to create the environment that feels safe where you can talk about it, sometimes just taking the time. Um, there, we, we just finished a, a concert that was all music of Margaret Bonds. Um, and so we needed to take time to talk about what happened to this black female composer and her music. You know, she was just, she was best friends with Langston Hughes. She was kind of on this ascendant path, but then her music was sort of just systematically sort of erased from concert stages. And I mean, so those are things we have to talk about. Um, we have to talk about the fact that when she was, you know, not that long ago, when she was a student at Northwestern University, there was a library where she went, where she had to, you know, all blacks had to study in the basement. You know, I mean, those things can't be missed in order for us to be able to sing this music um, or it would be a great loss if they were. So, I, uh, yeah. And uh, so we have to take that time and uh, um, we have to kind of reserve time on the clock for it. And it feels like it does place a value on it too. Cause obviously we're paying for singers time when we have two, say two, three hour rehearsals in a day. If you take an hour to be talking about stuff, we acknowledge as an organization, we're prioritizing this time to bring these issues to light and so that we are in it and inhabiting them. As we're starting to wrap up our time here, I wanted to maybe pivot just slightly to a little bit of what happens behind the scenes to make all of this work happen. Um, as you sort of mentioned with the Singers of Ordained and you're sort of flying folks in, you must have quite an executive and administrative operation that is the, the wind behind your artistic back. Maybe you can share a couple of things that are um, things that you're grateful for of the team that helps you pull together the presentations that you that you do. Oh gosh, yes, and 
if I let myself, I could just cry with gratitude about it too. Like just really great people, literally. Um, yeah, thinking about them. I just told them last week how proud I feel to be associated with them, you know, because of the way they carry themselves. And it's very moving to me. Um, Ann McNair is our managing director. She is a stellar human being. She is, you know, she, I learned more really about what the word integrity means by working with her. Um, and she is a beautiful manager of all the administrative things. Um, I, I better not start naming everybody because, you know, Robert Harlan's on our production team who's brilliant and designed so many things. Anyway, it's a great, great team. And um, and I think we kind of go about this the same way we've been talking, but like we go forward as a we, you know, the staff is connected to the artists. And I tell them this isn't something I say to kind of blow smoke up their dresses. I really mean it. Like when we when there is music on that stage, it is their expression. It is their song, you know, that that, that is being expressed. We all are co-creators in this. And you know, um, we're all super duper bunch of human beings with, you know, idiosyncrasies and, and places we want to grow. And, you know, so we're fumbling with stuff. I, I, we still feel, you know, when, you know, we ain't the Boston symphony and, and even they're filled with a bunch of human beings, you know, they have a huge, a ginormous budget. We are just doing that nonprofit work day by day by day, keeping the lights on. Um, but I will say they are just like stellar human beings and, uh, I feel like there's a safety here. We, you know, one thing that's really important to us is when we own our mistakes, each of us, uh, me too, top down, you know, across across the whole spectrum, the, it, like we just own our stuff, and and that making those mistakes is not an, any real issue as long as we know we share a dedication to this, and um, they do great work. Um, we have a, a a production team that, you know just they they want to find their way to yes and and that's living in the same world we all do which it seems like more than ever now i think after covid too everything goes moves slow more slowly people's responses are slower and i just feel like so many responses in the can we try this could we do this there's just a lot of no coming back sometimes and and it's so funny i remember when, this was several years ago we were, there was this, it was a small thing, but we were trying to get a piano to be moved from this place to this, uh, across the stage. And there was this very grumpy stage manager who said, we're just not done. Here are the rules of the hall. And I was like, yeah. And so I watched my my colleague, Robert, just elegantly speaking with him. And we just had a moment afterwards. And I said, you're doing it. You're doing that thing. I said, he just, you know, like he said, yeah. It kind of, we, we joke around, we say, he says no, but I heard yes. Uh, <laughs> Finding our way to yes. I am stealing that from you, sir. I, I love that notion because that is the true, I mean, when you your heart and your soul are into it, you're not looking for ways to say no. You're looking to right. understand why you're making what you make and you're putting that in the front of everything. Yeah. And I get why a lot of no comes back because especially people, consistent people, will think of stage crew backstage or they, do, they have the volume of what they deal with is so huge. And so they're, they're getting so much incoming. And if they just think so, there's some new crazy folks coming in with a bunch of ideas and it's just going to make our life terrible because I've seen that doesn't work. I respect that experience. So some of that kind of stuckness comes from having experienced a lot. But I think 
once you kind of earn your street cred to say, we're committed to what we're doing here and we will follow through on our parts. We won't be fools making your life hell here. Um, we're here to create, you know, isn't that what we're all here for? And then I think they, others can catch the spirit of that and want to join in too. So Craig, maybe you can give us an idea of what exciting things Conspirare has on the docket coming up um, for 2022. Super fun. Yes. Um, we have in the works a really fun, two fun co-commissions with The Crossing um, and uh, uh, a work called Job, um, which is uh, by Kyle Smith. And um, so we're really, that's really a choral opera. We're using the choir in a very different way, sort of theatrically. So we're super excited about that. Um, Conspirare has a new commissioning fund, which we're thrilled about because it's giving our whole commissioning work a whole new life. Mary Delk, uh, Joel Brower Fund for uh, New Music is, is uh, we're having great conversations. We've got a really special commission coming down the road with, Joby Talbot for a concert length work, several other things. Um, um, yeah, it's a good long list of really meaningful, juicy projects that we're really thrilled about. Um, our very first thing up is a uh, next thing is uh, a new work by Robert Keir. So we're within the next couple of weeks, we're about to receive the scores, which is always an exciting time, kind of midwife the baby in. <laughs> and um uh, so that's going to take place in early May. And uh, I think we're, it looks like if everything keeps going with COVID the way it is right now, that we'll be able to record that with our friend Blanton Alspa, who's wonderful. Um, and that's our, our chamber work. It's, it's called Earth Ritual, really with a focus of uh, Mother Earth, the climate crisis, how we can place our attention and focus to bringing all of our energies to sort of saving this earthly and human experiment. Um, but I think it's going to be a really important new work. And we're very excited about something coming in the fall. It's uh, a project with the Moreau Quartet. They're a world-renowned quartet. Just They're playing in every city, it seems, all the, you know, just all over the world. But they happen to live here in Austin, and we wanted to do something with them for years. Um, so... Um, we have uh, 12 composers who are writing new works for us that we will premiere uh, in October, this coming October, and it's uh, really an exciting um, moment. Well, that's exciting. Um, where's the best place to find information about Conspirare online? The website is great, conspirare.org, and uh, it's a lot of good information there, things you can uh, CDs you can get. I think there's a little swag. <laughs> Plus stories. We try I would them. like the tote bag. I will definitely be fine. <laughs> I'll mention that to the colleagues I was just bragging on about. <laughs> well, Craig, this has just been such an inspiring conversation. It's so wonderful to meet you officially. And there's just something about your soul. Giacomo and I talk about choral directors a lot and leaders and about some some leaders you know 
are are very out and they push and they they they're always I'm I'm waving my hand at my camera right now, but um, there's the best directors are inviting and they draw things from their ensembles and obviously I haven't seen you in front of an ensemble but just this conversation alone I can sense that from you and I can only imagine what a wonderful experience it must be to sing under your leadership so um, thanks for taking the time to join us today and to tell us about Conspirare and it's just been it's been outstanding very very inspiring thank you so much that means a lot and you know thank you guys for loving on this art form in this way it's so beautiful um i really love choral music and i know our that this thing we love is uh you know hasn't reached all the masses yet in terms of being their very favorite thing it's it's a small niche market but i think it's growing and um i i really appreciate it and it's been a joy to 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 get to know you both here too yeah very much I think that expanding our our reach in the choral world is is top priority, and and I think that leaders such as yourself um, are are pushing the envelope and trying to find ways to reach new audiences and expand um, our reach for sure. Mm, thank you. Well, let's talk again, and uh, to all of our choral practitioners, let's keep the fight going forward. It's very thrilling to be uh, doing this work together. Absolutely. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's finish off today's episode with one of my all-time favorite choral works by Samuel Barber, the Kulin. The word Kulin simply means a sweetheart, deriving from an old Irish term for a curl of hair. And the words sing about a couple who are so comfortable with each other and so deeply in love that they need no more words. It's enough for them to hold hands and look into each other's eyes whilst they share a drink cuddled together under a coat on the hillside. The music lilts along gently, suggesting a folk song, and there are some truly ravishing shifts of harmony in this final movement of Barber's three-part work, Reincarnations.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Grant submission proofreading provided by Chorus Dolores, who just loves jumping through grammatical hoops. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.